glad you all are here this morning. Uh, I get to do something really fun right now, and that is I get to uh, introduce to you uh, our two newest members, and uh, Aaron and Lorinda, if you would come on up. Uh, this is Aaron and Lorinda Guerrilla. Uh, they have been coming for about how long? About a, About six months now? Since March? Okay, about six months. Um, and uh, they got hooked in with us through Awana and, uh, and also through Mops uh, with, their, with their kids. And then we just sucked them right on in here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we're excited about that. So um, want to, um, uh, membership is our uh, process by which we identify those who have uh, made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ and who are in agreement with our doctrinal statement and church's bylaws. And these are the people uh, within our church who are part of what we consider to be the public corporate witness of our church. Uh, the folks who um, we would say, yes, we're confident this person is part of the family of God, and we want them to be part of our family as well, and we are willing to identify them publicly as our members. Uh, they have, as members, the privilege of being able to vote and to make the decisions that affect uh, the, the church family as a whole, uh, and also a measure of accountability from us um, for uh, continuing to progress in their Christian life and growth. Uh, and if that should stall out at any point, um, then uh, we as a, as a leadership team and as a church have, a, have a, 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 the privilege of being able to speak into their life and to, and to come alongside them and encourage them uh, to continue growing in the faith. So we have some vows for y'all. If you'd step to the microphone. Okay. Um, at, what you'll want to do is, in answer to each one of these questions, if you agree to uh, signify that by saying, Either I, well, in your case, we do, okay? Uh, first question, do you confess faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and do you desire it above all else uh, to live for Him? Do you declare your intention to live in submission to the doctrine of the church as expressed in its confession of faith? We do. Do you promise to support this congregation with your prayers, with your faithful attendance at its services, by your encouragement of our members, the willing use of your talents in its ministry, and the giving of your means as God prospers you. We do. And I've got two scriptures I'd like to read for you as our word of encouragement to you. First one from Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 to 39. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, we'll find it. And also Colossians 2, uh, verse 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Welcome, both of you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Aaron and Lorinda. We thank you for their commitment uh, expressed publicly here today and uh, privately at many times in the past of their faith in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for their sins, that he was raised from the dead to bring them new life, 
and to bring them into the presence of God and eternal dwelling places as members of your family. Uh, Father, we thank you for their commitment to live in faithfulness to the teachings of your word and in in close following of Jesus Christ. And we uh, entrust them to you that you will finish the work that you began in them by your Holy Spirit until the day of Christ Jesus uh, when he comes for us who are his. And Father, we thank you for them and we uh, pray that they will be a blessing to our church uh, and to the community in which we live. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Appreciate you both. Welcome. All right. Uh, We are in uh, Mark chapter 14 at the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, And you may not know it, but gardens are some of the most important places in all of Scripture. Uh, When God created human beings, he placed them, a man and a woman, in a perfect garden. And of course, you remember what happened. He abundantly blessed them and he provided for them in every way abundantly. And they lived perfect lives with everything they needed. They had perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with the creation in which they were living. They had perfect relationship with God who walked with them in the cool of the day. They had no guilt, no shame, no worries, and lived in perfect harmony. Everything was beautiful and good. And then there was one small rule which God gave. In fact, this is how he expressed it. He said this. He said, of all of the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. Notice the abundance of the provision, because that's what God emphasized. But of the one tree, which is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the serpent came in, and he deceived the woman while her husband stood passively by watching. He was with her when she did this. And after that, the man actively rebelled against God in the garden, and he chose to eat the fruit from the tree, the one tree out of all of the other trees that God had provided, the one tree that God had prohibited, even though he knew that God had said no. And at the end of the day, when it came down to a choice, will I obey my will and what I want, or will I obey God's will and what he wants? The man and the woman both chose. She through deception, him through active rebellion. They both chose. I will have my will rather than God's. And it plunged everything that was beautiful and good into destruction. 
The man and the woman were cast out of the garden. They, the perfect relationship that they had enjoyed with one another previously was replaced with one based on competition. Remember? Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. You'll be in competition with each other for who's going to run this thing. And pretty soon that competition between the man and the woman after they had children began to express itself between members of their own family and their own children. The first two of whom, one, killed the other. And man and woman no longer lived in harmony with creation. The ground produced thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of their brow they had to produce their food. And they no longer lived in harmony with God. He cast them out of his presence. And at that time, everything that was beautiful and good was ruined. But even as they were judged for their sin, God made them a promise. He said, one day a Messiah will come. The seed of the woman will be born. And the serpent who deceived human beings will strike the heel of the seed of the woman. But he with his heel will crush the serpent's head. And the serpent will be destroyed. And relationship with God would begin to be restored. And the curse would begin to be reversed. And men and women would learn once again how to relate with one another and human beings to be at peace with each other and eventually one day a restoration of all creation to the way that it used to have been, how it originally was meant to be. Yet when Messiah came, his own people did not recognize him. His nation's leaders plotted his death. And that brings us to our passage today, and another garden, and another choice. Will I obey my will or God's will? Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he found them again sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. 
Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, that Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise! Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion? said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. It's Thursday night. They've celebrated the Passover, and Jesus knows that tonight is the night when he will be betrayed. He knows that the time is coming not only for the physical pain of scourging and being crowned with thorns and being suffocated via crucifixion, but for the spiritual pain of bearing all of the sin of the entire world and God's wrath against it in one moment. And he knows that that is coming. And so Jesus does what he always does when he's in distress. He goes to his Father and he prays. He takes the disciples to one of his favorite places, one of their favorite spots as a group, which is why Judas can find them later. It's a place they have been to a lot. This garden called Gethsemane, which is a a word that means the olive press. Uh, They're on the Mount of Olives, and at harvest of the olives, they would gather them up, and they would take them to this place, which was a little walled area which had an olive press in the middle of it, and they would crush the olives and extract the oil. And Jesus is crushed down, and he goes down to the olive press with his disciples, and he takes his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, to be near him while he's praying. And the other disciples are, are there too, but, and, but they're further away. Because when you're in trouble... You want to pray, but you also want to have some close friends with you. And Jesus has the three guys that are part of the inner circle of disciples closest to him. And when he goes over to pray, he he falls to the ground to pray. He is literally face down in the dirt. He has told them, I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is as beat down and isolated and worn as he has ever felt. And Jesus, you almost never see him under stress. I mean, when the storm is raging and everybody else is worried and 
Master, don't you care that we die? What are they tell? When did they tell him that? When he's asleep in the boat during the storm. Was he worried? Was he concerned? Was he stressed? No. Here he is stressed. John tells us that as he prayed, sweat came out like drops of blood. I have done some fervent praying in my day. I have never had this happen. You have to be under extreme pressure to have that condition, which is called hematidrosis, happen to you where the capillaries under your skin actually break open and you do leak blood out of your pores. He is under an extreme amount of stress, but he goes to prayer. And he prays in a way that no Jew ever prayed. He starts out, Abba, Father. That term, Abba, is the familiar term for your dad. If I introduce my father in a formal context, I say, hi, this is Mr. Ward Horn, okay? But when we're at home or we're out fishing on his pond, it's dad or it's pop. You know, hey, pop, how's it going when he calls on the phone, okay? It's a familiar term. It's a family term. And a pious Jew would have never prayed that way talking to God because the term that Abba was felt to be too familiar, not high enough to be able to refer to the God who is the creator of the universe. But Jesus prays that way. Because Jesus is not an adopted son. He is the begotten son of God. And he prays, Abba, Father, And then he says, everything is possible for you. He acknowledges the power of his Father, of God. Everything is possible for you. Is God sovereign? Completely. And then he says this, take this cup from me. Jesus is not a masochist, in other words. He's not going, oh, man, I'm about to go through excruciating suffering. Bring it on. No. He says, if there's any way that I don't have to do what I'm about to have to do, please let this pass from me. He knows exactly. He is God in the flesh. And he knows precisely because he can see precisely into the future, what is going to happen to him. He doesn't want to suffer and die that way any more than you or I would want to. Take this cup from me. And yet, in the next line, you get the most amazing prayer that is ever prayed. Knowing everything that's going to happen down to the fine detail He says, yet not my will, but yours be done. Remember Adam and Eve? When she saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and was good for food and desirable for making one wise, 
she took it and ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he also ate. And they rebelled against God because they had decided, I will have my will regardless of what God thinks. Jesus says, I will have God's will, though it costs me my life. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And it's here, I think, at this prayer, that the victory over sin and death and Satan and hell is really won. The events that follow after this just confirm what has already happened. The decision has already been made. I will go to the cross. I will suffer and die. I will bear the wrath of God against sin for all humanity, for all sin, for all people, for all time, and I will do it tomorrow if that is the will of God, not my will let yours be done. That serpent's temptation has already been rejected and God's word and will are going to be obeyed. And after this first prayer, Jesus goes back to find his friends. Wouldn't you love to have some encouraging friends in this kind of a moment? And he goes back and he finds some friends and he finds them and what are they doing? <laughs> They've got the jello neck head bob going. They're not praying, they're sleeping. Now, in their defense, okay, they've had three glasses of wine and a big heavy meal, okay? One glass of wine is enough to put me out, okay? These guys have had three as part of Passover and they've had this big meal. And, it, you know, it's just like after Thanksgiving at your house. You have your slab of turkey, and you put the, the stuffing on it, and you have that second piece of pie, and you drown everything in gravy, you know, and you maybe drink some wine, and you, after, you know, the football's on, and you pass out, right? It's late at night. These guys are passed out in the garden. But it's important that they be awake. And so Jesus wakes him up, and notice how he addresses Peter. Peter is the name that, Je that Jesus gave to this man. It means rock, the one who is solid, the one who is going to be there, the one who is going to be the foundation through his preaching of the establishment of the church. That's not how he addresses him. He says, Simon, his old name. Not the rock. Even though Peter has talked all about how he's going to stand when everybody else falls <laughs> asleep at the moment he's most needed. Simon, are you asleep? You said you were better than everybody else, and yet here you are cutting up logs like everybody else. Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. Remember, 
He says, I'll never deny you, even if everybody else does. Temptation's coming. You better pray, Peter. You better pray. You better keep watch. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. In other words, when it came down to a competition between what his body wanted, sleep, and what he wanted in his spirit, the body won out. I got to have a nap. Jesus, I can pray later. I got to have a nap. So Jesus goes away and he prays the same way again. Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And he comes back. And he finds them again sleeping. Because the text says their eyes were heavy. And they didn't know what to say. They were embarrassed. So he goes back a third time and he prays again. And when he comes back, what are they doing? Sleeping. And he says, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's get going. Here comes the betrayer. Because they could not keep watch and pray, they are going to fall to temptation. The Scripture is going to be fulfilled. They are all going to fall away and run. When the opportunity came to stand with Jesus, they're going to cut out like a bunch of scared rabbits. Or like mice when you turn over a box in the garage, you know, and they just go everywhere. And they're going to run. And here comes Judas. Verse 43, uh, Jesus has just gotten them all awake, and here comes Judas. And he is leading a crowd. And they've got clubs, and they've got swords. They've probably got torches since it's night. And I want you to imagine that scene at the end of those movies, you know, where the, the, the people in the village realize there's a monster in the castle. And so they get this mob up, and they've got their clubs and swords and whatever else pointy they can come up with. And they're off to kill the beast, you know, and all that, right? Only this time, it's not a beast. It's Jesus, the Messiah. And they're coming after him exactly that same way. And Judas is leading. Again, as we said last week, don't imagine Judas as this dude with like a pointy, you know, goatee and dark, bushy eyebrows and kind of, you know, kind of this uh, snidely whiplash type character. That's not who he is. He is one of the men who have followed and eaten with and been with Jesus every day for three years. This is one of his friends. This is someone who knows Jesus probably better than anybody except Peter, James, and John on the entire planet. And here he comes leading the mob. And he's going to take a gesture that 
disciples commonly did with their rabbi as a way of honoring him. Now, see, I don't get this because I'm a, I'm a Western, North American, 21st century man, okay? And the idea that a, another man would come up and want to kiss me just grosses me out in every way imaginable, okay? But in the Middle East, to this day, men will still kiss one another, sometimes on the mouth. This is why I'm not a missionary to these places, <laughs> okay? And sometimes they will even walk down the street together holding hands if they're close, in close relationship with each other. Now, I have never done this with anyone except my sons when we're in a parking lot, okay? But in this culture, this is a normal thing. And it, when you would greet your rabbi, you would kiss him on the hand or on the face as a way of saying, you are honored, you are my rabbi. And Jesus, Jesus is going to receive this gesture from Judas as he probably had many, many, many other times in the, over the course of their relationship. And you can almost hear the grease on this greeting. Rabbi! Comes up, throws his arms around him, kisses him. And Jesus is, not, is no fool. He knows what's going on. He says, do you betray me with a kiss? In other words, you don't just twist the knife, dude. You bust it off the handle. He's taken the most intimate, most deeply felt emotional thing that someone would do with a person to whom they were closely related and used it as the very signal to cause Jesus' arrest, trial, and death. This is about as evil as a person can be. And then the men, all the mob comes, and they all seize Jesus, and they arrest him. And one of the men, uh, Mark doesn't tell us this, the other gospel writers do, that it's Peter who has a sword. Peter is the one who is supposed to be the guardian. Maybe he was the biggest. You know, I mean, maybe Peter looked like Tom Saxton, you know, great big tall guy, big strong arms, you know, and, uh, and Peter had a sword, okay? And the helmets that they wore uh, in those days had a seam that ran down the middle where it was riveted together, and then your ears stuck out of the helmet. And the Roman soldiers had a maneuver that they would do with their swords where they would take that sword and they would try and split that seam on the helmet and your head. Okay? And many commentators feel that that is what Peter is trying to do. He is trying to split this guy's head like a melon. And he misses, and it kind of slides off the side, and it just chops off one of those ears that are sticking out. And he's not much of a swordsman or much of a defender, all right? He's a fisherman from Galilee, but he's doing his best. And it's the servant of the high priest, and he whacks off his ear. And Jesus says, am I leading a rebellion that you come out 
with spears, I mean with swords and clubs to get me? Why has he asked that question? Because he knows what the charge is going to be, that he is leading a rebellion, first of all. And everybody who's there knows that he's not. And then he says this, Every day I taught in your temple courts in public. In other words, out where everybody could see in the daylight. And yet you never tried to grab me then. How come you're coming out in the dark at night where nobody can see? These guys know that what they're doing is not right. If they, they didn't, if they thought what they were doing was right, they would have the spine to walk up to Jesus in the temple where he taught every day that week and grab him then. But they don't have that much backbone. And so they've got to do it on the sneak, in the dark, when everybody else is going to be sleeping it off. That's when they grab him. And they arrest him. And he is not going to escape, though he could. Why? Because... Jesus has determined he is going to do God's will, not his own. In fact, he tells uh, Peter in one, of the gospel, in one of the other gospels, I believe it's Luke's account, he says this, Do you not think that I could call 12 legions of angels to protect me? 12 legions is 72,000 angels. One angel eliminated 185,000 Assyrian troops uh, in an incident in the Old Testament. In one night, one angel. I don't know what kind of force 72,000 is, but it's a serious army. We'll assure, I'll assure you of that, okay? Nobody has ever had a rowdier army than 72,000 angels. And Jesus goes quietly. into their custody. And when he does, and when the other disciples realize that Jesus is not going to resist, they all run. They all run. And then you get this incident here in verse 51 and 52 that um, is not recorded by any of the other gospel writers. And for that reason, a lot of commentators feel that this person who's identified here is Mark, the gospel writer. And probably what has happened, at, and, and I believe that they celebrated the Passover at Mark's father's house that night. And so when the arrest happens, everybody has to bug out for safety somewhere. And some of them probably go back to the place they just were, knowing it was a safe location. And... Mark is the person who goes out, and he runs out, and he runs out in such a hurry that all he's wearing is what he's sleeping in. Uh, Hebrew men at this time had an, had an inner garment that they wore that was sleeveless. Um, it's kind of like a, 
a, a lady's nightgown, okay? Ankle length, long sleeves, okay? What married women wear to this day, right? Um, but uh, anyway, um, doing a series on marriage in a few weeks. We'll talk about that. All right. Um, um, this kind of thing. And then you had an outer cloak that uh, you would cover up in like a blanket. And he, he just gets up wearing whatever he's got on and runs out after the crowd. And when he gets there, they grab him, thinking, ah, this is one of the disciples. We'll get him too. And the way he escapes is by wriggling out of this nightgown-like thing. And he's wearing what he's got, what God gave him, okay? Um, as he flees from the scene. Now, this passage records some things that have just massive implications for us. And this, this incident, this, this, this little scene right here in the Garden of Gethsemane, teaches us things that, that we cannot imagine. And I just want to just draw out just two things, okay? Number one, Jesus is a better representative than Adam. The Scripture says that Adam, this is Romans chapter 5, I'm summarizing here a little bit, that Adam, in a sense, was our representative as, a, as the human race, the representative for all of the people that would be born from him. And Adam was in the garden, and his failure to obey God brought sin and death onto every person who would ever follow after him in his, in his lineage. And because God loved us, in his timing and plan and purpose, Adam's failure was not allowed to stand unanswered. God had already planned for a redeemer, a man who would stand where Adam fell, who would be a better representative than Adam was, who would die for the penalty of sins that had already been committed and the ones that would already that would be committed in the future and who would actually reverse the curse and bring new life now i don't normally do this i like to stay in the passage that i'm in but if you've got your bible turn to romans chapter 5 verse 15 and following you need to see this Because this is great stuff that if you understand it will change your life. You need to see this. And he's talking about Jesus and he's drawing a contrast here in Romans 5 between what kind of man Jesus is in that he brought life as a gift from God versus what kind of man Adam was who brought sin and death into the world. So you need to see this. Verse 15, but the gift... In other words, Jesus is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? In other words, Adam sinned and brought death on everybody. Jesus died and brought life to everybody. 
as a manifestation of God's grace. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. Judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. In other words, everybody died. In fact, there's whole chapters in Genesis, and you read them, and you get, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and had this many sons and daughters, and he died. And so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he had so many sons and daughters, and he died. And every sentence at the end of the little summary paragraph about this person, you get, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. The statistics are all in. One out of one dies. But, though death reigned, God's through, how, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness, Jesus' death on the cross was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Jesus is a better representative than Adam. And here is the question Who are you picking? as your representative. If you are living under slavery to your sin, when death comes for you, you will be separated from God forever. That is the clear testimony of the Scripture. But if Jesus is your representative, then life will reign for you and you will reign in righteousness with Christ in eternity forever. So who are you choosing to represent you? Because not to make a choice is to make a choice. It's to stick with Adam and to suffer the penalty of sin and death and hell. Or to choose Jesus and to embrace the one who conquered sin and death and hell on your behalf. Who crushed the serpent on your behalf. And to receive and inherit eternal life through him, through his grace through nothing that you did. Jesus is a better representative. Second thing, one day God will restore all things. Again, this is the clear testimony of the Scriptures. I've read the end of the book. And it's not a mystery how it turns out. God will reverse the curse entirely. The tree of life will be planted and bloom again to bring healing to us. And God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more mourning or crying or death or suffering anymore for the old order of things will have passed away. 
And God will restore all things to how they should have been, like they were in the garden. And you will enjoy right relationship with God and right relationship with other human beings. We will be in perfect harmony with creation. We will be in perfect harmony with our own soul. Because all of our guilt and shame and dishonor and sin will be wiped away and we will stand before God innocent of everything we've ever done through the blood of Christ. And it is because of what Jesus did in a garden where he had a choice, just like Adam did, between my will or God's will. He chose to obey God to death rather than have his own way. And the only appropriate response to the most massive stuff that has ever happened. This is the event of history. This is the one that if you know, if you're not a student of history and you don't know who was at the Battle of Waterloo and all that, there won't be a test. It doesn't matter. This is the only thing that matters. Because this is the hinge point of history when the curse begins to be reversed, when men and women begin to be set free from sin and death. And the only appropriate response to that is worship. You know, a lot of times in a sermon like this, I try to get really pointy and prompt the conviction of the Holy Spirit in everybody's life, including my own. But there are times when all you can do is look at the Scriptures and fall to your knees and fall on your face in worship before God who loved you this much. And so as our worship, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to have our worship team come, and they're going to lead us in a song, because the only thing we can do in the face of a God who loved us so much that he would rather send his own son to die a painful death on our behalf and to have to decide between God's will and his own and to choose God's, though it would result in that kind of punishment. Only thing we can do is to give praise to God. So let's pray and let's do so.